Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, we have an episode really trying to dig into nutritional science. And, you know, at Diet Doctor, we talk a lot about nutritional science and specifically, you know, does the recommendations that we hear from individual doctors or from guidelines or from medical institutions, do those recommendations sort of match the level of evidence? And, and I believe that that is not the case, that frequently we get very strong seemingly conclusive recommendations that come from pretty weak levels of evidence. So, you know, one question is, what do we do about it, right? How do we, one, how do we create better levels of evidence? But two, how do we interpret the evidence that's out there and try and apply it to us as individuals, or if you're a clinician, to the person you're trying to take care of? It's a lot easier to say for general populations, but we're not general populations, we're people. And that's where there's a bit of a disconnect. So in this episode, we're gonna get a couple different perspectives. We're gonna hear from Gary Tobbs, who is a science journalist, but wanted to help create better nutrition science and created this initiative, the NUSI initiative, which we're gonna hear Gary talk about but also sort of the lessons he learned. And it was a really sort of humbling and enlightening experience about nutritional science. So we're gonna hear from Gary, and then we're also gonna hear from Deirdre Tobias, who is a nutritional epidemiology expert. And she knows nutritional epidemiology probably better than most people and has spent her career uh, trying to make it better, right? And using what we have and trying to make it better. So at Diet Doctor, we've been fairly critical about nutritional epidemiology because it doesn't tend to answer the question that we really want answered when it comes to what should we be eating for our health as individuals. And so Deirdre's gonna talk about that. And and basically, look, there's not like one right answer, like here's the answer, here's the study. Randomized controlled trials have their downfalls. Nutritional epidemiology has their downfalls. But in this episode, I think it's good to have the discussion about the differences so we can take away little tidbits to learn, you know, how should we look at the data, what can we pull from it, and what can we do differently in the future to improve nutritional science. And, you know, coming from a, a physician background, medical science is very different. You give a drug or you don't give a drug. Someone goes to surgery or someone gets a stent and somebody doesn't, and then you follow them. The intervention is very clear. The outcomes are clear to measure. Um, and it's much much more simple, I guess you could say, but even then, it's not always clear cut. So then to make it much more confusing about you know food and one type of food or whole meals or whole dietary patterns and how long do you follow them, it, it gets confusing and it's understandable. So I won't I won't belabor the the downsides here, but let's get into the discussion and see what these uh, what these two individuals have to say with different viewpoints, but. Um, maybe similar conclusions about the state of um, nutritional science. We'll see. So enjoy this interview with uh, Gary Tobbs and Deirdre Tobias. First, we're going to hear from Gary Tobbs, uh, investigative journalist, author of Good Calories, Bad Calories, Why We Get Fat, and The Case for Keto. And he's working on another book um, about type 2 diabetes at the moment. Uh, but what we get what we talk about with Gary, we get into a lot of the details about the studies funded by NUSI. So I want to talk about the four specific studies first to give you some background. There's the Energy Balance Consortium, which was an eight-week study in the metabolic ward involving um, just 17 people, feeding them a, about a 2,400-calorie diet. So I think Gary makes reference to a 3,000-calorie diet, but it was a 2,400-calorie diet, testing uh, four weeks of a baseline high-carb diet and four weeks of a low-carb diet and what happens to energy expenditure. 
Then the second diet was this diet fit study, which was a year long study, not a metabolic ward, but free living people testing what was supposedly a low carb diet and a low fat diet against each other. The third was the Framingham Food Study um, run by Dr. Ludwig, which was 164 individuals uh, for 20 weeks randomized to 20, 40, or 60% carbohydrates, which with fixed protein in those, in those three groups at 20% protein, where all the meals were provided. And again, the endpoint was energy expenditure. So the thought being with the first and the, and the third trials I just mentioned, that on low-carb diets, energy expenditure could go up with greater fat oxidation. That's what the endpoints were. And then finally, the fourth trial, which was a little bit different, uh, an adolescent study on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and uh, removing sugar from the diet. So those are the four studies funded by NUSI that we're going to talk about um, in this interview. And you can see Gary, he's always such a great storyteller. He tells great stories about um, organizing NUSI. But what I wanted to really get at was what was the motivation behind it? What were the lessons learned and what is, how, is, how did this change his view of nutritional science and maybe how can it inform us about nutritional science? So let's hear what, what Gary Tobbs has to say. All right, well, Gary Tobbs, thank you for coming back once again to the Diet Doctor podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. It's always a pleasure to be here, Brent. Thank you for having me. All right, well, today I wanted to focus specifically on NUSI because you recently sent out a post, December 31st, that after 10 years, the Nutrition Science Initiative, or NUSI, is being dissolved. So I thought this was a great opportunity to meet with you to look back and sort of revisit your um, your goals in starting NUSI and kind of kind of walk through the progression of NUSI and all the lessons that you've learned or or maybe still need to learn about nutrition research that we can that we can share with everybody. So so to start, why don't you tell us what NUSI is, what it was, and what sort of inspired you to help start it. Okay, so the Nutrition Science Initiative, NUSI, and you, capital S, capital I, um, was uh, founded in 2011. Uh, when I met, uh, I had written uh, my first two books, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and Why We Get Fat, uh, advocating for this uh, hypothesis of obesity that it wasn't the uh, uh, overeating problem and the people didn't get fat because they take in more calories and they expend, which is a conventional thinking and is known as these sort of energy balance hypothesis. And there are all kinds of variations on this thinking. But the gist of it is you get fat because you eat too much. And uh, my research had led me to conclude that a far more, that obesity really was a hormonal regulatory disorder, that it dominated by the hormone insulin, and that you could set up experiments to, in effect, test. The experiments almost always test the uh, uh, what's called the null hypothesis or the conventional thinking. So you could set up experiments that could test this idea that obesity is an energy balance disorder, and that we could discuss the nuances of the experiments. But they would be pretty. The concept was pretty simple, but actually doing them requires, as with all scientific experiments, very well thought out, carefully designed experiments, and probably a series of them as, you know, part of my learning experiences will discuss is as you do experiments, you learn what you did wrong when you did the experiments, and then you jigger the experiment, or you address, you create a new experiment that addresses what the issues were in the first one. So anyway, I meet uh, Dr. Peter Atia, who's a very impressive, at the time, relatively 
young physician who's bought into this way of thinking because of his own personal experience and because he's read my books and the books of others and he finds the thinking compelling. And Peter's a force of nature. Um, between the two of us, we decided we were going to basically start NUSI as a nights and weekends activity. Uh, we were going to try and raise money to fund the clinical trial to test the uh, an experiment in effect to test the energy balance thinking. We estimated it would cost about two to three million dollars. We thought maybe we could do that by um, uh, crowdsourcing um, the naivete. I used to joke, I still do. Peter and I was like the Hardy Boys decide they're going to start a not for profit. Um, to you know, a research organization. Neither one of us had any experience, although Peter exuded confidence and I had faith that whatever he put his mind to, he would succeed. Um, the As we were planning this as a nights to weekend activity, I get an email from fellow named John Arnold, who says he has a foundation in Houston. He had heard me talk about these ideas and the research that is needed on a podcast called Econ Talk. And he, they said their foundation was interested in obesity research and did I have a proposal? And I Googled John Arnold and it turned out that at the time he was a fairly young, about Peter's age, uh, multi-billionaire exceedingly intelligent man, and uh, they agreed to back Nusi. And in fact, to make it a much bigger organization than we had initially planned, which turned out to be a problem. So they agreed to back the research, to give us money to open offices, which Peter did in San Diego. It became his day job, which I don't think he had ever planned. Um, and uh, we began the job of recruiting researchers to do the research necessary. We had a lot of ideas about, like, should we start a research institution where we do the research? You know, we hire researchers. Um, my thinking was... There had been very compelling research done over the years, but because it was done by people who were sort of outside the establishment, it was never taken seriously. Mm. So the research had to be done by well-respected establishment scientists who I also respected. In the course of doing the research for my book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, I had interviewed something close to 600 researchers and administrators. And I had spent a lot of time talking to the leading people in the field. And I thought I had a good idea who in the field were yeah. good scientists. And yeah. these were the people I want and who would be open to doing the research. And these were the people I wanted to recruit. And, yeah. So, um, so let me, let me stop you there for a second though, because I find this so interesting that that you, like you said, you and Peter are not researchers, but you saw the need for this type of research that wasn't being done otherwise. And I think that's that's such an important point to make that wasn't being done by, you know, high level researchers in the establishment to be taken seriously. So there was this need that you had to fill. And so first you had to come up with the idea to fill the need. And but second, you had to raise money for it because money doesn't just exist that you can you can right. access to do this kind of research. So you 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 mentioned a few million dollars in your naivete. So I think that's an important point for people to understand how expensive this kind of research is. Because you end up in 10 years, you ended up doing four studies 
um, that were well-received, published in good journals, you know, lasting anywhere from eight weeks to a year um, for these studies. But how much did you have to put into these studies to get them done? I think that a number value really helps people see the, the enormity of the project. Yeah, uh, the, the initial study that we put together to test the energy balance hypothesis would have cost in the neighborhood of $30 million. And that was the eight-week metabolic ward there, study, eight weeks. No, that was it wasn't going to be eight weeks. It was going to oh, be okay. a randomized controlled trial that would have been three I to see. four months long, maybe six months long. I forget the details. But because that was so expensive, instead we decided to start with a non-randomized pilot trial to minimize the risk such that when we did get around to spending in the neighborhood of $30 million, we would have already sort of, um, you know, run, run the various modules of the experiment through this test period to know, to minimize the risk that we were going to make some kind of embarrassing mistake. So the original uh, eight-week pilot trial that has garnered so much controversy at least as I remember it, and it was actually my idea in an email to begin with, was basically done because we didn't know how to do the $30 million trial in a way that would in all minimize risk. Yeah. And there's such, well, we can get to that to begin with. <laughs> we can. Well, so we, it's interesting that yeah. you call it a pilot a pilot study, because I think in most people's mind, when they think about the, the Ener energy balance consortium, this eight week study in a metabolic ward, testing a baseline diet versus a low carb diet and the effect on energy expenditure and the attention and controversy it generated. I don't think many people associate the word pilot study with that. They just think it was a study. And that's what I find so interesting, kind of getting your perspective on it. This was a pilot study to prove that the testing methods worked so you could go on and do a bigger study, yet it was being promoted as sort of like a conclusive study in the, in the mainstream media, which also shows the difficulty of conducting the study and sort of appropriately relaying what the findings implicate. So, and you found yourself caught in that sort of storm, didn't you? Yeah, no, the whole thing was... Oh, uh, there are various words to describe it, but I can't use them. <laughs> on the air. <laughs> um, family show we appreciate that yeah the um yeah it's crazy it, nutrition presents unique problems as a science because you're especially uh, if you're studying toxic effects of various substances it's not that hard to do because toxic effects imply that the effects happen quickly over time, you know, you remove uh, vitamin C completely from someone's diet and they'll manifest scurvy in a few months. And you add, you know, lime juice back like what's his name did with the British, you know, Navy sailors 300 years ago. You could demonstrate that you could resolve the scurvy and therefore that whatever the active substance is, it's in, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables or at least lime juice. You can do these experiments. And they were traditionally done. But then the big shift in nutrition science where it went off the rails in the second half of the 20th century was it tried to establish the nutritional cause of chronic diseases. Everything from obesity to diabetes and heart disease. And you know, now you're talking about diseases that develop over the course of years to decades. You know, obesity develops. I mean, most of us gain a few pounds a year. We don't actually 
you know, takes us 20 years to become obese. So when you start doing those studies, it's virtually impossible to do any kind of controlled experiments. You can't just lock people away for three months and, you know, add the substance or not and see if they die or not, or if they get better or not. It's sort of a, a you have to figure out ways to do the experiments that might give you some hint to what's happening over the chronic time. And then you hope that you see the same hint over and over again in different ways. And it's all subject to biases of the investigators and all the problems that come with any science. But successful sciences are sciences where they can rigorously test their hypotheses. Right. You know, and the cheaper the test the better the science, because that means not only can you rigorously test your hypothesis, so can everyone else. So one of my learning experiences was this cold fusion phenomenon that represented my second book. So these scientists at the University of Utah think they've created an effect nuclear fusion in a bottle of heavy water that they've got a couple of palladium electrodes in and they plug it into the wall and lo and behold, they generate fusion. And it's a cheap setup. And from the day they announce it, scientists all over the world try to replicate it because they can. And what's interesting is because scientists all over the world tried to replicate it, most of them found out that it was wrong and found out why it was wrong. But a few of them said, hey, look, we got the same thing. And it became this fascinating episode in what hard scientists call pathological science. But the key to any successful science is the ability to test your hypotheses. And the easier it is to test them, the less expensive it is to test them, the more successful the science will be. Ideally, <laughs> you get a hypothesis, you and I've, again, this is what I'm telling you is based on interviews with probably 10,000 researchers over the course of my career, thousands and thousands of researchers. You, when I've talked to physicists about this, like the, the real explosive growth in physics in the 1950s, 1960s, this was even before you needed big atom smashers. And they would say, look, we'd get this idea on a Friday night. Saturday, we'd go to the lab and scrounge the you know, the junk pile for the equipment we need, we'd build the experiment and by Monday morning, we'd have our answer. Yeah. Although maybe on Monday, we'd find out that the equipment doesn't quite tell us what we need to know and we find other equipment and by Wednesday, we have our answer. And you just yeah. keep reiterating the experiments, and, you know, jiggering this, fixing that, controlling but nutrition's that. a little bit different. Nutrition's <laughs> entirely different. And you're yeah. dealing with humans who think for themselves. So it's sort of like right. one thing if you do rat experiments, because you could sort of count on the psychological aspects of what you're asking them to do, not to have too much of a, an effect on what they choose to eat or not. But humans, yeah. it's a mess. When you start interpreting the data, it's not cut and dried. It's the interpretation of the data depends on your perspective going in. There are a lot of beliefs in even in using the equipment they use that's dependent on various hypotheses of <laughs> that you're right, actually so kind this big of debate. testing. 
Right, about so, the double-lated water and is yeah, that the right exactly. test? And, like, and so, sort of like a distraction from what the test, what the study was actually trying to test. We didn't actually think four. We thought we'd probably see an effect in four weeks, that, but yeah. it was a pilot study. It was sort of, let's make sure this, they called it a module, you know, this idea that you've got the run-in diet, you're putting them in the respiratory chamber two days every week to measure their energy expenditure. So right. let's make sure that works. So we could get them in energy balance in the first four weeks. Let's make sure that works. And then but that didn't work, should, right? Like in the first four work. weeks on so, the baseline diet, they started losing weight. So right away, the trial is sort of like, I don't know, you want to say ruined or like when you when you design it a certain way and all of a sudden you see a different finding from, from what you were intending to do, it really casts some doubt. Well, this is where it gets into opinions. <laughs> you know, it's sort of from our perspective. Um, well, again, one of the, we talked about the expense of doing experiments. One of the problems with these experiments is after you've spent $5 million on an experiment, this pilot cost about $5 million. You want to be able to think that you did something meaningful. Right. Plus, you may not be able to raise another $5 million to redo it if you didn't. That's a great point. If you say, we didn't learn anything, we didn't show anything, good luck getting more money for your next study, right? Yeah. So, great point. you know, again, we were committed to these people. So, they, you know, the, the idea, at least so I thought, was this was a pilot study. We were going to do the pilot study. Finally, you know, I did expect to see an effect. I expected that when they minimized insulin, they would see a significant effect. So it's interesting. There are a lot of interesting things about the experiment. Um, they they were taking in four or five people in four different laboratories, and in some of the laboratories, they saw a big effect. But they averaged it out. We had mm -hmm. discussed this before, but we never decided what to do about the human variation issue. So when you did an average and you did it according to one measure of energy expenditure, you saw a little effect, but it seemed to taper off towards the end of the month. So it was reported as being a transient increase. I mean, there are a lot of issues, and we, we'll, we'll, we will talk for hours if we talk about right. it. Right. We Let's don't, just we don't say by the end of it, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. the Go ahead. investigators – driven primarily, and I think this is fair, by Kevin Hall, who had been anointed the primary investigator, you know, one of the two principal investigators, um, were driving this idea that their, their primary endpoint was energy expenditure measured in these big calorimeters. And the energy expenditure measured in the big calorimeters seemed to be transient, this change in energy expenditures. And they seemed to have lost more weight per week in the run-in period on the high-carb diet than they did on the ketogenic diet period. Therefore, this could be cited as a refutation of the hypothesis, particularly Gary's hypothesis, as it was often perceived. Um, they also measured energy expenditure by this other technique called doubly labeled water. And the doubly labeled water energy expenditure seemed to confirm this alternative hypothesis, that went up a lot. And like right. I said, in some labs at Columbia, for instance, they had subjects whose energy expenditure went up by 800, 1,000 calories a day, mm -hmm. which is, you know, one point That's I said to one of Rudy Leibel's collaborators, a uh, you know, gentleman who was like my age, my, yeah, I mean, a very wonderful, sweet, sensitive 
man. I said, look, how'd you guys screw up the experiment? How'd you screw up the dumbly labeled water? And he goes, what do you mean? He's a really nice guy. He's not used to somebody like me. And I go, well, <laughs> your, the energy expenditure went up by 800 or 1,000 calories a day. And he said, well, he, he, he was insulted. He said, we don't screw up doubly labeled water. We've been doing this for 20 years. Yeah. And I said, then how do you explain what happened to your subjects? Because basically this was exactly, actually it was more than I expected to see, but it was similar to what I, I had hoped we would see. And he just looked at me. And he used to get this sort of look of cognitive dissonance where you could see he was kind of turning inward to try and understand. And he said, let me get back to you on that. But those were the two choices. Either something had happened that had refuted his belief system right. or they had screwed up the measurement. Right. Um, right. He never got back to me. So there were all kinds of, you know, it was a, it was a pilot study. When, without randomization in these trials, you can't infer right. that what you think happened happened or didn't happen because you could just be seeing an effect of the fact that the ketogenic diet came second. Right. Always. So after seeing having so much controversy from a pilot study from your first venture, uh, were you like ready to throw up your hands and say, nutrition research is crazy. Why do I want to get into this? Or did you want to sort of double down and say, we've got to get this right. Let's find a better well, we way to a, do it. We had always thought that this was a pilot study that would yeah. inform the design of the follow-up study. The problem is, as we were designing the follow-up study, first, Peter sort of spun out of the new sea orbit. Peter had issues. He had been, in effect, transformed into a fundraiser, which is not what he had signed up on. As he left, we were trying to design the new experiment. Kevin Hall then left because Kevin had thought that NUSI itself was too involved. We were trying to be involved in the data analysis by giving them our notes and the notes of our scientific advisory board. And we thought very differently about it because we sort of existed under a different paradigm. We were involved from a devil's perspective here that, you know, the scientist wants to run the study that they feel has the most scientific integrity and outside influences. We're used to outside influences being pharmaceutical companies or right. food manufacturing companies. So outside influences has just a negative connotation. Well, so, so that's period, the idea. Right? Funding agents do not get involved in critique, except if it's the NIH, they do. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Fair <laughs> you know, point. So it's sort of like it was, and we believe we had these arguments. There was one meeting in Houston where these arguments went on for something like six hours and it got very heated, you yeah. know, and the problem was we wanted to put together a team of rivals. We used to talk about a red team and a blue team. Yeah. This is how they often, so the red team would understand the energy balance thinking and defend it and argue it, and the blue team would understand this alternative hypothesis that obesity is a hormonal right. regulatory problem, this carbohydrate insulin thinking, and defend, and they would work together and fight together to make sure what they did was fair. But there weren't people we could put on the experiment who were, we'll call us the blue team, who were blue team people. And so instead, we ended up with uh, a red team doing the experiment, and we were the blue team trying to get our critique, our ideas heard. They, we had a contract that said they don't have to change a word. 
anything we say, we have no control over what they write in the paper. But yeah, so that, this is what's so interesting, though, like the red team, the blue team, where it, it, it from a simplistic standpoint, it should be science. There shouldn't be teams. It should be what does the science say? But that, I, I guess, was maybe that's what you would call naivete. That's sort of Well, too, that was part uh, of a naivete. But again, even yeah. in the science, you want people. This is what I had learned in writing my first two books. You want to get the smartest people you know to critique your work before you publish it. Because once you publish it, you're buying into it. You're committed to it. Yeah. Okay? I mean, you're always committed to, you know, some idea of what you hope to find. But you want to get the smartest people you know to critique your work. And if you're not doing yeah. that, you're not doing, you're not maximizing the science. You're not maximizing the possibility that you're going to get it right. So the idea was, well, the smartest people we know, who at least some of them, whatever they thought of me, I was, they never quite knew what to make of me because I didn't exist in their world. And even Mark, to some extent, Mark was a PhD, not an MD. So Mark's work, they respected his intelligence and his work, but he came from a different perspective. Um, anyway, ultimately, we, it was a mess. And when the paper finally came out, um, you know, this obesity world and Twitter and, you know, it's so polarized to begin with. Nobody likes to be told that what they believed for their entire life is wrong. It implies that they're not as bright as they thought they were. And so there's been, there's a lot of sort of vitriol in this world. Um, anyway, that was a, when the experiment, the paper was coming out. We started designing the experiment. Kevin said he's not going to work with us anymore, so he left the experiment. His collaborator stayed. Eventually, we put in a proposal for an experiment that would cost around $25 million. The new experiment had been designed. So, for instance, you didn't have to, this idea of getting the people in energy balance in the beginning was no longer used because we had learned from the pilot that it didn't work. <laughs> Um, which was the reason why we did the pilot. Anyway, right. the um, Arnold's decided that they weren't going to fund the experiment. They thought this was a bad marriage, which yeah. is absolutely right. Yeah, I can't that, blame them. Yeah, I was completely in agreement. I was surprised. I thought they were going to fund it um, and make insist on the changes that we had wanted that would lower the price by about $5 million or all these bells and whistles that were thrown in we thought were um, sort of the equivalent of scientific pork. Um, but instead, they decided it was a bad marriage and they decided they would fund, uh, put out a request for proposals <clears throat> and fund the experiment themselves. Meanwhile, Nusi had our contract with the Arnolds had come to an end. And if we weren't going to oversee this experiment, we really had no other purpose at this point. So they didn't re-up the contract because they had no reason, nothing for us really to do. The experiment that we wanted to do that I had basically founded Nusi to do would be funded by the Arnolds directly. Um, so they put out this request for proposal, the remainders of the EBC put in a proposal to them, David Ludwig and Kara Ebeling at Harvard put in a proposal, um, other groups did as well. They ended up choosing the Ludwig and Ebeling proposal that did exactly. So is, that, is that what became the Framingham Food Study? 
That became the Framingham food, the second Framingham food study okay. that then $12 million experiment, arguably the most expensive experiment in obesity ever funded. And year two COVID hits. And that's the end of it. Well, okay. I mean, there was still a study. I mean, there was still a, a published. No, there was, the first study was the one Nusi published, Nusi okay. funded. Oh, I see. That so was the difference. Okay. So this and, was the 164 people, 20 weeks, where every meal was supplied for 20 weeks, which yeah, is a they live huge undertaking. In effect, on in this kind of resort, hotel, yeah. conference center area. So you house them for 20 weeks, you feed them for 20 weeks, you control their diets. Um, I had issues with that proposal as well, but I trusted that David and Kara were right when they disagreed with my anxieties. Um, yeah. But I think this highlights how, how difficult nutrition studies <clears throat> is, right? Because you can, you can cut costs and do a two- or four-week study, but humans are complex beings where things change over time, and you're not going to see immediate effects like you were saying. So a 20-week study makes a lot more sense than an eight-week study, but if you're going to control what they're eating for 20 weeks, that's expensive. So that oh, that's somehow you were able to fund that, though. Yeah, so the Arnolds funded that. It was terrific. But then it required people to come to Framingham or wherever this conference center was. It was outside of Boston. Um, and uh, like I said, once COVID hit, they, they shut down and they couldn't get started yeah. again. And that was, um, it was kind of heartbreaking. So Nusi okay. also funded three other studies other than the energy balance mess. Um, you know, what happened there again is... Um, Kevin Hall insisted that this was a definitive trial and that it was convincing and its results refuted this alternative, this idea that obesity wasn't an energy balance hypothesis. And like I said, even with his collaborators going on to try and fund the follow-up study, this was a message and it was embraced widely by people who were yeah. looking for reasons to think they were right all along. And this was a reason. Well, and that's um, what's interesting about the diet fits being part of, of in your repertoire as well from Nusi, because diet fits was another one that sort of said, doesn't matter if you're eating high carb or low carb, the weight loss is exactly the same at one year, but you can find a hundred holes in that one too, especially since they were eating 130 grams of carbs at the end versus 210 well, so grams. This is, or, so, you know, and this is diet fits is a, I would not have funded diet fits. That was not my choice. Um, the, uh, there's a difference between diet trials and scientific experiments. Okay. So diet trial, you, you, you compare two diets and you want to know which one works better. You know, which one the patients, your subjects lose more weight on or their LDL goes okay. lower or whatever. It's sort of their own relatively uncontrolled trials. Um, they're free living trials. Uh, the kind of experiments where you can fix variables. So, you know, remember eighth grade science class. It's like you want to try and fix all but one variable. You can't fix one variable in nutrition, but you want to fix as many as you can. Right. Um, those require that you kind of lock people away and feed them what they eat. And then ideally you watch them eat. So you know that they're not eating at all. They're not flushing some down the toilet or regurgitating it later or anything like that. You can do what you would do with, you treat your human subjects like they're animals rats. if they're the <laughs> institutional review boards will let you. Yeah. Um, so diet fits 
the reason uh, once I heard we were funding it, I was able to embrace it on the idea that uh, Christopher Gardner at Stanford is going to try and do a diet trial where he compares the lowest carb content ever to the lowest fat content ever. So it's going to be a low carb. He had done this A to Z study before, but he had never gotten his carb content. The self-reported carb consumption was around 25 to 30% of the diet after six months. Um, same problem with the low fat trial. So here they were really going to use an intensive intervention, weekly meetings to drive, make sure the low carb people eat the lowest carb diets they can and the low fat people eat the lowest fat diets they can. And after that, we kind of let Christopher do his thing because he's this is his expertise. We weren't going to get that involved. There wasn't the results would be interesting and they would inform these debates, but it wasn't the kind of experiment necessary to test this energy balance hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Then we okay. realized that Chris, the instructions in both diets, Christopher wanted the diets to be healthy and he didn't think sugar and processed foods were healthy. So he can't ethically tell anyone to eat sugar and processed foods, even if they're carb rich. Right. And not fat rich. Right. So both arms of the trial are carb restricted. They're both being told don't eat sugar, don't drink sugary beverages, don't drink beer, don't eat processed carbohydrates. But then even yeah. after three months, the low carb group is allowed to start eating more carbs. Like that's well, that was so the then the other well. thing he does is he's afraid that one of the things is you recruit people into the the most expensive thing that can happen in a trial is you recruit subjects and they drop out after you've recruited them and done all right. their training and got them yeah. started and then they drop out. It's a disaster. So he didn't want anyone to drop out. So he didn't want the diets to be too rigorous. And so I think, was it three months where he says after three months, you can start adding carbohydrates back in. And on the low right. fat arm, you could start adding fat back in. Okay. Because we don't want you to drop out because if you miss apples, you miss apples. They add apples Yeah, back. but then, then you end up not ans actually answering the question you set out you to answer. Up, and that's, yeah. so that's what I see as like a prime example for the funder, you know, not supposed to be able to dictate the, the design of the study except it's, if it's designed in a way where it's not going to end up answering the question. And that's well, sort of and the, funny, we didn't, the conflict. Never crossed my mind to look at, this is all part of the learning experience, right? Yeah. This is the Hardy Boys experience. Never crossed my mind to look at Christopher. I was busy doing other things too. We all had too much to do. So the idea that we should page through, you know, Christopher Gardner's methodology to make sure. Like when I talked to him about the adding carbs back, he said, that's what Atkins does. He had done an Atkins trial, the A to Z trial, the A stood yeah. for Atkins, but Atkins did not do that. Atkins said, <laughs> you can add carbs back, but you have to check your ketones with your urine, urine ketone strips to make sure you're still in ketosis, which means to make sure you're still losing fat even on this level of carbs. You don't just, boom, add carbs back. You yeah. make sure you stay, I forget what term Atkins used. So it's sort of... I don't think Christopher was trying, he wasn't trying to sabotage the trial. These all seemed perfectly reasonable to him. And right. they would have seemed perfectly reasonable to 95% of the people in the world. I just happened to be the one in 20 to whom they're not reasonable. But that, by that time, it was too late. I actually have an email I sent to um, 
my colleagues when I watched those videos and realized what was happening and confirmed it in the, the methodology paper, um, I said, you realize he's telling both groups not to eat sugar and refined carbs. This is These are, according to this alternative hypothesis, the most fattening carbohydrates. Okay, so if he gets the kind of poor compliance he got in the past, plus both groups are being told to avoid the most fattening carbohydrates, he's likely to report it as a low-fat diet and the low-carb diet were equally beneficial. Yeah. End of story. And that's how other people will see it, which is exactly what happened. And so we had these long discussions with Christopher where we brought in David Ludwig from Harvard to say you have to describe these, try these diets precisely. You can't say low carb versus low fat. Ideally, you say carb restricted low fat versus carb restricted high fat, which -hmm. would be accurate. And that was too much of a mouthful. So he ended up with healthy, low carb, healthy, low fat. And then when you looked up healthy, that was no sugar, no flour, no processed grains. So the whole thing was a learning experience. Well, I mean, I'm trying to keep track of all the lessons learned throughout this course, and there are quite a few, and we haven't even gotten to the last study, which was the simplest study probably, the the pediatric um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which I actually did a video on recently, just removing sugar from the diet of adolescents for eight weeks dramatically reduced um, the amount of liver fat. So the sort of a very simple intervention, just remove sugar short-term, and eat, eat whatever else you want. So sort of minimal control. And so it was probably the easiest to do, I'd imagine, and hopefully the I mean, cheapest to do. The easiest, it was certainly the least expensive. Yeah. I think it was at most a few million dollars. Um, it was, I wouldn't say it was an afterthought. That too was a preliminary experiment that we hoped would you know, what we needed to know is if you can see a resolution of fatty liver with the low sugar diet, how long does it take? Right. Because then we wanted to plan a study. We thought we could plan a study using summer camps yeah. where we could put children in summer camps and then completely control their diet under the kind of, you know, op- conditions that, that, that David Ludwig was using for his second Framingham study, you know, where you've, now we've got them, we can control their diet, we can assure they're eating only what they're given within mm-hmm. reason. And now we could do, say, different levels of carbs or sugar content to see if there's a dose effect. We could do all kinds of things. And we know we've established that in eight weeks, which is, it will fit in a summer vacation. Right that we might be able to do the clinical trial. But again, by that point, you know, NUSI was uh, sort of a skeletal organization. I like to use the Princess Bride terminology. We were mostly dead, not mostly all dead, dead, but mostly <laughs> dead. Um, in fact, we had sort of, we kept going and on one level, just, uh, you know, one of our, our, our uh, staff kept getting pages so she could oversee the the NAFLD, the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease study. But that study, we just heard from uh, one of the researchers recently is that she had been at a um, uh, uh, liver meeting of some sort. Now, that that, that study is already changing how people think about therapy. That just get kids off the sugar, which was always the obvious suspect. Right, right. Um, So, Well, so we've gone through a lot of details about 
the individual studies about your course right. through NUSI. So now that officially December 31st, NUSI is no more, and you're looking back on it, if you were going to give advice to anybody who wanted to get involved in nutritional research and wanted to help further nutritional research, and by the way, I should say that this is you know dramatically different from the nutritional epidemiology studies, which really dominate nutritional research, right. and these are so much harder to do. So what advice would you give or what hope is there that we can have better quality studies to answer the important questions of what's driving obesity and how do we treat it? Yeah, not much. <laughs> um, it's a real difficult problem because, okay, so the messages, the, the lessons I learned are, you know, first of all, the experiments, are the, the, it's, a, it's funny, I used to describe my early books and my obsession with science as how easy it is to get the wrong answer. Okay, and how hard it is to do science right. That was my learning experience of the first 20 years. And I decided to start a not-for-profit where that learning experience is reiterated. You, you, like any human endeavor, you don't know how you're going to screw up until you do it. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. these are extraordinarily complex systems that you have to create based on, again, hypotheses that better damn well have been tested equally well before you sort of assume them to be true when you did your experiments. Um, you know, I used to argue this to, uh, I, even once to Kevin and his collaborators at NIH, you know, in an ideal world, we'd do this experiment. You would present the data in a symposium to people who were in all critical thinkers who know this technology very well, and they would explain to you all the various ways that you might have screwed it up, yeah. all the various alternative hypotheses for what you are you claim to have been seeing, all the various reasons why you might have seen energy expenditure by this one method seem to wane, while by this other method it seemed not to wane. Right. Um, and then we redo the experiment. So you say, okay, well, this didn't work. The idea that we get people, and this is what we were hoping to do, and we clearly needed to randomize to know that we're not seeing some effect of the right. way we changed the diet to begin with. Um, so we redo it. Right. And then now you might find out that it might support the way I think of the experiment. That, you know, they might see the results I expect. So you're going to be think, okay, I fucked this up, right? I just, because Taubes clearly isn't right. So you're going to give me all the reasons why you think you screwed up the experiment, because now it looks like I'm right. Yeah. And, and so will we do it again? <laughs> That's what I meant when I said the cheaper it is and the faster it is, the better. So let's, okay, right. let's agree that if we do this and we do that, we will take care of these two issues you pointed out that were legitimate issues, even though I don't think it's right. I mean, I have this great quote from Crick. My notes are full of, you know, uh, highlighting from scientists, books, memoirs of scientists. And at one point, Francis Crick, a famous Crick and Watson DNA, is talking about, you know, they're thinking, um, uh, they're, they're talking at, I forget if it was Oxford, Cambridge, about, you know, what they think is going on with DNA. And there's a hypothesis that something entirely different is going on. Yeah. And he says, we didn't think that was right. We thought that was far-fetched, but we clearly had to do an experiment to show it. Right. What it's you like, think isn't enough. You have to do the experiment. What you think is just 
you know, and what happened here is you got all these people arguing back and forth about which measure of energy expenditure was more valid and whether the choice of, you know, they, they, they certain subjects were uh, uh, rejected from the analysis because they were seen as outliers and whether that was valid. And it's like, I once said to Kevin Hall and the first time they presented the data, look, if you're, if this hypothesis is wrong, this alternative hypothesis, this hormonal carbohydrate insulin model, we want to kill it. Okay. We want to beat, beat it to death like a dead horse that we yeah. just keep beating and beating. We don't want to just kick it in the shins. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like that's when we called this organization the Nutrition Science Initiative. The idea was we want to take this sort of sloppy, flaccid nutrition research and bring it up to the standards of a rigorous, hard science. Yeah. As I had learned them to be for, for right or wrong. Right. And so I the conclusion. The conclusion may be that that is not possible. I mean, that is the conclusion that is, is not the way the science is funded. Yeah, and yeah, not so, the way it's carried out. And on some level, it's not possible because of the time scale necessary to do the right. experiments. So we're sort of stuck with this nutritional um, science field that is almost that is you could say never going to have the experiment to answer the question. And that's why you need to pull from this, you need to pull from this, you need to pull from that and try and synthesize it as best you can. Yeah, but the, the pulling and the pulling is all based on you pull what you like and that's based yeah. on your bias. And now you right. put together you know, belief systems based on your bias. So right. we all do it, I do it in my books. You know, the other people do it in their papers. The last book I wrote, The Case for Keto, so what are we arguing? Basically, look, you don't need the experiments to know whether or not a ketogenic diet works for you or a low-carb, high-fat diet or a low-carb, high-protein diet. That's one of the big mistakes here that's always been made, okay? You can do the diet. The world is full of people who it doesn't matter if obesity is an energy balance disorder or hormonal regulatory disorder. They found that they could basically reverse it and the you know, the complications that go with it and blood pressure and lipids and all that by eating a certain way. Right. But you can do it yourself. That's the point. On some level, you don't need it. You just need ideally physicians in a public health system that'll support your choice if you find it makes you healthier. Next, we're going to hear from Deirdre Tobias. Now, Deirdre uh, has a doctorate in nutrition and epidemiology, and she's an assistant professor in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. And she's the academic editor in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Uh, so she has a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge, and has spent a lot of time thinking about nutrition, about science, about the connection of the two, and specifically from a perspective of nutritional epidemiology. Now, I mentioned in the interview with uh, Gary Tobbs that a big part of his effort to start NUSI was so he wouldn't have to rely on nutritional epidemiology because in terms of its strength of findings, it's weaker data. But when it comes to large populations of, of data for long-term events, it's really the only thing we have because you can't do randomized controlled trials for 20 or 30 years um, with compliance you know, to make it still a high-quality study. It just doesn't exist really, um, especially when you talk about the costs involved to that and the monitoring involved in that. It, so it's an imperfect world that we live in when it comes to nutritional epidemiology. So the majority of the studies that do exist are from nutritional epidemiology. And we've spent plenty of time talking about 
um, or I guess I have spent plenty of time talking about what I see as the weaknesses or the failings of nutritional epidemiology, but it doesn't always mean you have to just throw it out. And that's where I think Deirdre Tobias brings an interesting perspective. So again, we're not going to answer any questions about, yes, nutritional epidemiology is good or no, it's bad. Or, you know, we don't even get into all the specifics of it because we've talked so much about that. But I think the discussion, the the journey, the the asking the questions is so important. That's why I really liked this um, this interview. So if you're looking for a firm conclusion to, to say yes or no, this is not going to be the interview for you. But if you're looking for sort of a thoughtful exploration of, of the different nuances of nutritional epidemiology, where it fits into nutritional science, where we're going, what we can do better, okay, then maybe this interview is for you. And I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Well, Deirdre Tobias, thanks so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Thank you for having me here. Now, first, I have to start by saying we we have a previous video of you um, discussing your study of LDL with uh, HDL and triglyceride numbers based on the a women's health studies. We have that whole video. I highly recommend people go back and listen to that because I thought that was a very helpful discussion. A lot of the topics of which are also germane to what we're going to talk about today. But today, so we just heard from, from Gary Tobbs and about his experience with the Nutrition Science Initiative trying to, to fund better... Um, randomized controlled trials, nutritional studies to answer important questions. And as we heard, it kind of left with a little bit of a disappointing um, reaction that it was, he sort of realized how incredibly difficult it is, how expensive it is, and how hard it is to design these trials to answer clinically meaningful questions. So in a way, you could say you're on the other side of the aisle because your expertise is in nutritional epidemiology, um, which gets a lot of complaints and a lot of pushback from people in the science space too. And it's like, what are we doing here? Where is nutritional science and what can we really trust? So give us sort of your overall impression on on where nutritional epidemiology fits in and why it's better, why it's worse compared to randomized control trials. Just a small topic to start, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, um, well, answering this will be a breeze. Um, yeah. I know. I think the really big picture is that no single study will ever answer the questions that we find most important. And I think really looking across all designs is essential. And this isn't exclusive to nutrition science, but I think it's incredibly um, relevant for nutrition scientists to keep in mind because of the challenges we do have in, in both intervening with dietary interventions and observationally trying to capture them and collect these data and follow people long-term. So there isn't, you know, kind of a best design for all of uh, nutrition science questions out there that everyone should be striving for. It really takes kind of the whole gamut of tools to really uh, put together the picture of, of what it is we're trying to understand. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good intro to to the whole concept that that no one study isn't going to answer the question. You don't have one study, so you have to kind of go with the trend and pull from the best data. Now, let's start out with the bad of nutritional epidemiology, and then we'll get into the good. So, so the bad is this so-called data mining, right? Where where people have access to these databases and they just sort of crunch the data to look for some sort of association and publish it as like, look what I found, look what must be true. What for, so for someone who's an expert in nutritional epidemiology, what's your sort of gut reaction when you see studies like that? Um, I think it completely depends. I think if someone has a hypothesis, like 
does LDL relate to all-cause mortality? And there's data sitting around like the Women's Health Study. And this is an emerging hypothesis. And there's data that's been sitting around for decades that happens to have collected this. Why not start there? And I completely understand how if you look at PubMed and search you know, carbs and diabetes, you'll get thousands of hits. And it looks just like every cohort has just cranked out all of these associations on every food, every nutrient, and every disease. And so the data mining perception, you know, I I can see where that comes from. And in my role as an academic editor, editor at the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, I do see papers come across my desk that have that feel where it's just pluck a nutrient, pluck a disease. And, you know, if you look at the author's publication history, it's that nutrient with every disease or every nutrient with that disease. And that feels cheap to me and kind of circumventing the spirit of science, which is start with your question first and then you know, build the research around it. Um, So, you know, over the last several decades, since we've had some of these huge cohorts, there have just been that many questions that have evolved over the years. And if the data is there to kind of see, okay, well, let's take a first stab at it. And what do the observational data show um, that I'm not, you know, I, I don't see that as a red flag. I see that as one piece in this overall puzzle of the science. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So, so just because there are examples of this data mining and just, you know, sort of knowing the conclusion before you look at the data even doesn't mean that all nutritional epidemiology studies are like that, just like you're saying. So your study, you had a hypothesis. You had no idea what the data was going to show. You were looking for one specific thing with your hypothesis, looking at a retrospective analysis of the, that data set that was there. Very different than sort of looking to see these data sets where you can find these associations for your nutrient and your disease outcomes. So very different. I think that's a good point. Um, but then it always comes down to, okay, the quality of, of the data. Like how, like one thing I like to say is the quality of the recommendation should match the quality of the data. Now here's what's interesting for someone like you is, is you're not making the recommendation, right? You're not designing the dietary guidelines. You're not saying, you know, uh, one diet is right for everybody, but you're, you're providing the science, but then people are taking that science and, and maybe making leaps at making stronger recommendations than what the diet, the, the evidence should support. So I guess what I'm, what I'm beating around here and trying to come to a question is, is, you know, do, doesn't nutritional epidemiology, is it strong enough in many cases to say, yes, if you, change the way you eat in this way, you're going to dramatically improve your health or reduce your risk, given all the uh, the drawbacks to nutritional epidemiology, that it's not a perfect study, you know? Yeah, I so that's that's a big question. And I do think about the application of nutrition science to things like guidelines and um, clinician practice. And a lot of the time, I think nutrition epidemiology over the years has fallen short in not asking questions like the guidelines or a clinician or a patient might ask them. And that to me has been the biggest disconnect and not, you know, the, the underlying quality of cohorts or how we collect diet and all of that. Like we can certainly talk about that for years, but the, the question itself, comparing people with high intake of that 
versus low intake of that and following them for 10 years to see who gets type 2 diabetes. That's not the question that you just said, you know, doctor, if I lower my intake, will I prevent this disease? And, you know, I think that's, that's where nutrition epidemiology and even trials need to think when they design their, their research and when they even formulate their hypothesis is I don't, at the end of the day, care what the mortality rate is in this subgroup versus that subgroup. I, I care, should people be eating something differently? So why would I do my analysis comparing this subgroup from that subgroup if that's not even really the question I want to ask? Hmm. So... I, you know, I think nutrition epidemiology needs to go back to the drawing board and say, if my question is about change in diet, then I should be analyzing change, right? And if it's about substituting, eating this instead of that, which is what someone would do in practice or advice one would be giving, then that's how the analysis needs to be done. Um, yeah. And I think um, the the typical approach of you know, take my population, divide it into categories of food intake, you have low intake, medium and high. That's not asking the question that guidelines will be trying to say in words. So the alignment between the science and the method and the approach with how they're going to be utilized is so important. And I, I want nutritional epidemiologists and scientists everywhere to be more aware of that. So that was, I'm glad you asked that question, because I think that's a big shortcoming, not of the quality of the data, but how the questions are even being asked by the researchers yeah. themselves. Yeah, it's a very thoughtful answer. I think that's a great point. Start with the question you're asking, and that will start. That will change the way you design the study, which will change the answer, hopefully in a more clinically useful approach. Because, yeah, when you think about the clinician, the clinician's in front of one patient trying to decide how to help this person. And, you know, the, you get these claims that, uh, that you know, eating in couple eggs is the same as smoking six cigarettes. Like when you hear fantastical and horribly incorrect claims like that, it's like, okay, well, what do you do with that information? Or, or that, um, eating, uh, eating processed red meat increases your risk of colon cancer by 40%. Well, what is, what does that mean for the one individual? So that's the next question I want to get to is, is the hazard ratio and the strength of the hazard ratio. And, you know, I, I talked about one study that looked at, um, a study from a veteran VA's clinic, and does the um, number of fast food restaurants correlate with the degree of diabetes? And the conclusion of the article was yes. The more fast food restaurants, the more likely are they to get diabetes. And the hazard ratio is 1.01. I'd never seen a hazard ratio so small. So my mind immediately says, throw that out. That doesn't mean anything. So well, how do you like just teach people about hazard ratio and the meaning and what it says about the, the magnitude of effect? Yeah, this is such a hot topic and I think critics of nutritional epidemiology cite this one a lot, right? Like how can we believe anything that has such a small effect? Um, and I don't, my, my biggest question back is, is it the size of the effect estimate? So a 20% greater risk or a 40% greater risk. Is it that's not that big of a deal or it's not believable? And I think those are two different concerns. Like with diet, we eat such a variety of food and nutrients over the course of a meal, let alone the entire day, that when we study a single food or a single nutrient, of course, it's not going to have some massive profound effect unless we're talking about like arsenic and you know, you know whole grain rice or something. But the 
the individual foods and nutrients that comprise our meal and our day and our pattern over the course of weeks and months. And when we look over the course of years and decades for these long-term chronic diseases we're usually interested in, then of course, these are going to be an accumulation of modest effects that on a population level probably have a meaningful uh, impact on disease risks. Um, That said, I think there's you know, also the concern then, well, if it's 1.4, that could be confounding or some other just noise factor. And that's fair, of course. I think any time you see a modest effect size when you, you know, look at um, a dietary exposure with some outcome, that should certainly be top of mind. But then the next thing you have to ask is, okay, what are the confounders that I think are um, at play here. Like if people who eat this food are different and that's what's driving this effect size, then what is it about them? And not just stopping at the criticisms, but taking it that step further and really digging into, okay, are they more likely to be smokers, have obesity, be sedentary, um, have less access to healthcare, um, you know, their, their, their socioeconomic status or other major determinants of health differ quite a bit. Like, un, un, I hate this word, unpacking what it is about <laughs> the, the, the people who eat different foods that might contribute to this effect that you're seeing. And then that's, I mean, that's what epidemiologists do. We don't just say this food, that food, oh, look, here's a disease. You know, the hypothesis comes down to all of this and the subject matter expertise of knowing everything that's different about people who eat this food versus who don't. And, Mm -hmm. and if we have data being so careful to control for that in our statistical analyses, and if we don't have that data, then maybe this isn't the data set to do it in or to recollect it or to just have a big asterisk and be super annoyed that you'll never really know. I don't know. But the, uh, the point is that, you know, just like stating the limitations isn't enough. It's, it's how big are these limitations? What are they? Um, are they so large that it would explain this relationship or is it actually pretty modest of an effect that it would have? And even if we accounted for that, the relationship 1.4, 40% greater risk would probably still be there after we accounted for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think, um, really what that comes down to is just understanding the biases more than just being able to say there's bias, but to, to say to what degree and from what and how big or small is that bias. And at the end of the day, if it seems that there's just an overwhelming amount of limitations and the, we can't really trust the validity of this estimate that we're getting a 40% greater risk of whatever then I think that, you know, the author should be honest. And I don't know where headlines like eggs and smoking come from, but, you know, <laughs> I think I personally would never put that in a conclusion. So I hope there aren't scientists doing that. And that's probably more right, of a journalist's right. take, but. Right. That didn't come from a, a study conclusion, right? That, that, so no, I, I would hope that would never be, but that was a, a doctor and a scientist making that claim, but based on other studies, but, but I guess that's the trap we fall into. And that's what just can get so frustrating for the average person trying to make sense of all this because people taking these and making these you know, just fanatical claims from this from this research where where it's not meant to draw the connection. And that's not any fault of yours. That's not any fault of the researchers. But it just leaves people being so deflated and so depressed about how am I supposed to make sense of any of this? And 
I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there is an answer, but I, I'm, I'm sure you can sort of tap into that on Twitter that people just get like so frustrated and confused. Is, is that something that you've noticed and, and find, hope to find some way to address as part of oh, your work? Completely, completely. And I think, you know, we've gotten maybe somewhat of a break over the last two years with COVID taking over as the most frustrating source of epidemiologic <laughs> confusion. Um, but, yeah. you know, nutrition, I think, has had this longstanding uh, struggle with communication and it's it's not it's just like it's these probabilities that I think are just very difficult to convey. And when we talk about an exposure that you have to have, but to what extent, it's not comparing, you know, do I take the drug or not? Do I have this operation right. or not? That's not what we're dealing here. So this classic right. medical paradigm of treat or don't or give treatment A or treatment B, uh, nutrition doesn't fit into that 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 peg hole. And it's, it's frustrating that we can't give these binary answers of eat it or not. And we all need mm -hmm. to eat carbs and fat and, and protein. Even if you're low carb, you're still eating some, right? And your body's making it, even if you're not eating it. And it's, it's, you know, so it's, there's a spectrum of something and where we fall for optimal diet in that spectrum is what people want so badly to know. And yeah. At the end of the day, I don't even know if that exists, but I think we have a pretty good idea of, you know, what most of the way gets us there for most major chronic diseases, at least in the U.S. Um, but it's I can definitely sense the frustration. And I, I think yeah. there there's, you know, maybe some things that we can do about it. Certainly improvement in methods is something I've been personally very interested in. Yeah. Especially when a certain food can serve a particular purpose. Like if, if eating red meat for somebody is going to help them feel full and reduce their calories and maybe have them enjoy their meals more and reduce their cravings, and it's going to change uh, for the better, you know, their whole dietary outlook. You can't control that in a study. You can't look for that in an epidemiology study, but you can say for the population, those who eat red meat have a slightly increased risk of these conditions, but that doesn't say anything for that one individual, but nor should we expect it to. And I think that's the problem when we sort of expect the studies to be able to answer all the questions. Um, but, but two other things I wanted to, to ask you about. One is the, the Bradford Hill criteria. You know, we, people cite the Bradford Hill criteria a lot. And, you know, this is something from, I don't even know, it was like the 1950s or 60s or something when they came up with this. And it seems like I never heard of it before until like the past maybe five or six years. It's really seemed to have a, a comeback to address some of the perceived weaknesses in, in epidemiology studies and look for stronger associations. So in your training, in your work, does the Bradford Hill criteria ever factor into what you're doing or how you're seeing studies? Yeah, so I think this, it's really at the, um, a tool in the toolbox of those developing like the guidelines and, or using the totality of evidence to come up with a conclusion. It's not something that at the end of one study, you would kind of take the checklist and say, then can we conclude causality? Um, and yeah. I think that's important to keep in mind that it's not, th these aren't criteria to apply to a single study and say, is this study good or bad? There are checklists for that, um, but this is more with this hypothesis and all the data that's out there, do these data check these boxes and do we at the end of the day conclude this is likely causal? And like one analogy I can think of is 
So you have, you have a, a kid, right? So say you walk into your living room and there's a broken vase on the floor and your kid is standing next to it with a baseball bat. And that's all you see. <laughs> and you can conclude that your kid did it. You don't know. You didn't see it, right? We don't have an empirical uh, videotape or, you know, um, anything to say exactly what happened. We now have to draw, we have to look at our observations, right? And we can um, ask questions to get more information. We can look around the room and see if there are any other clues as potential causes. But really what you have to do is infer based on all of this data, what happened? How did that vase break? And maybe your child says, well, you know what? It wasn't me. I just happened to be walking by with this bat. A bird flew in the room and did it. Okay. And if you had no other information, maybe you think the kid was lying, but then you look, you see the windows open and there's feathers everywhere. Now what do you do? Right? <laughs> so this, this is causality and causal inference. We don't know the truth. We infer the truth. And you do that based on estimates and observations and experiments. And all of this collectively points to with, you know, you can use Bradford Hill criteria's checklist to say, okay, there is an accumulated amount of evidence to say that the bird actually broke the vase and not your son or whatever it might be. So this, you know, this is what we're dealing with in all, you know, most areas of science and in disease outcomes and exposures like diet where it's not, okay, let's give you a drug. Let's give you the placebo, see what happens. We don't have these acute exposures and acute outcomes. We have these moderate effects accumulated over an entire diet that you eat for days, months, years, your whole life. And these long-term uh, chronic diseases that take decades to develop. So there's no snapshot that gives you that truth anywhere in a, any of that. And so it's challenging. And, you know, I get the criticisms, but I want people to understand why it's hard. And that's not to say it's an excuse for doing bad science. It's the reason that we're still evolving as a science and why we have to still develop better methods and why, you know, when we realize things are not working in one way, try another. And mm -hmm. even randomized trials, they'll face their limitations and not being able to look across a spectrum of dietary doses or comparators or long-term follow-up, you know, aside from feasibility and adherence. And, you know, I, so the nutrition field is faced with this, this just um, burden of having an incredibly common exposure that we'll all eat some version of forever and really long-term outcomes. Um, so it's really the perfect storm of just drama. And that's where we're at, I think. Um, but I know that there are scientists that are very well-meaning that want to do better. And by do better, I mean, understand the limitations and try to overcome them and fix them, not just continue to crank out what we've been doing and confuse the public more. Right. Um, because I, I, everyone I know that I work with isn't doing that just to confuse the public. We all genuinely see where the data are going and involving and try to keep up with it in that way.
I love that analogy. That was great. I think that's a, a great, great last question, except, except my final question, just a little more fun, personal question. How long does it take you to find all those gifs or gifs or in that you use in Twitter? Cause your game is, is strong. You've got some of the best ones out there. Oh, that is, how- <laughs> I love it. That's such a compliment. Um, you know, there's a gift search bar. So I just like search whatever emotion it is that I'm trying to convey and then the internet magic web does the rest and maybe I'll like, you know, kind of uh, be geared towards certain movies or characters or TV shows that I, I tend to like more than others. But um, yeah, no, they're, they're the pure joy that keeps on giving. Although I know, <laughs> I know there's plenty of people who are incredibly annoyed by them, but that's okay. <laughs> I think it, it's it's very entertaining. So you're a great follow on Twitter. I recommend everybody follow you, Deirdre underscore Tobias, um, and uh, definitely worth it. So thank you for taking the time uh, with us here today. Yeah, thanks so much, Brett. Well, I thought that was a really interesting compilation. Gary Tobbs, a science journalist who and, and book author who wanted to help answer the questions of uh, nutrition science and wanted to find a way to create better science, got into it with the right the right, uh, the right motives, but saw the challenges and really didn't get to the answer he wanted. And in the end, sort of thinks, well, we're probably not going to answer it with science and we have to figure it out from an individual basis. Compared to Deirdre Tobias, who is creating her career and a very illustrious career uh, about nutritional epidemiology and about nutritional science, trying to make it better, knowing that we're not going to answer any questions with one study, but trying to point to a direction and, and hoping to make that good enough to trickle down to eventually help in the clinical scenario. So where do we stand now? Right, there is no answer. And I sort of tried to preface that to say, we're not gonna get an answer. And that's what's part, that's what's so, I guess, intellectually interesting and just maddening about nutritional science. That what does this mean for me as an individual or as a clinician? What does this mean for this person sitting in front of me? And those are really hard questions to answer because we all have to eat. We all have to eat food. We all have to eat a collection of food. Our diets are not the same as the diets as the people in these studies. And well, what about all the different factors? I mean, there's so many questions that can drive you crazy, but we have to start somewhere. And I'm glad there are people like Deirdre Tobias trying to uh, ask the right questions and trying to find answers to the questions and moving nutritional science down the road. And um, but I guess in the end, I still sort of agree with, with Gary Tobbs as well as you've got to figure out what works for you. We all are individuals and we have to figure out what works for individuals. The world of information is out there. We have to take all that information and do our best to apply it to us as individuals. So that may not mean we follow all the guidelines because the guidelines may not apply to us as individuals. We may not agree with all the epidemiology studies because they don't, uh, you know, those don't address us as individuals. But the same can be true for randomized controlled trials. Maybe the inclusion criteria don't fit us. Maybe the diet involved in the randomized controlled trial isn't like our diet. So we can't hang our hat on any one thing. And that's why we need people who devote their, their time and their energy and their intellectual capacity to thinking about these things and working with individuals to try and help them. Um, and that's what certainly what we're trying to do at Diet Doctor to, to synthesize the data as best we can in a way that we think will, will eventually be helpful for individuals and for clinicians. And it's a continual process and we don't always get it right, but we're certainly trying and we appreciate you coming along for the ride. And we hope you found this discussion with Gary Tobbs and Deirdre Tobias, uh, at least interesting and hopefully helpful as well. Thanks a lot, everybody. And take care.